The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The refrain, you, Lord, are our You are my salvation. It is common knowledge to us, but it is sweet. Sweet to say it, to sing it, to consider it. You are our salvation. We say thank you for that, and we offer praise to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the work that you have done to make us human beings fallen in sin to make us saints, heirs, children, citizens. You have done a marvelous work. You have saved us. You are a great deliverer. I pray, Father, that as we look at this passage today before us in the Gospel of Luke, that you would open our eyes to it, and particularly that you would open our eyes to the wonder, to to the greatness of Jesus. Many things that we intellectually, conceptually know, we easily overlook. So will you refresh our minds with truth? Will you cause our hearts to sing? And from that, Lord, would you produce life, abundant, real life in us? Most of us here, Lord, know you. Most of us are, are, are your people already. Would you produce life in us? But perhaps some here don't. Lord, call them in. Open their eyes and call them in. Would you be honored here amongst this people? And towards that end, will you commission your spirit, Father, send your spirit here now in clear and in powerful ways, to clear away obstacles, to clear away any any kind of sin barrier that may stand between us and and clear communication from you, any kind of physical distractions that may stand in the way, to clear them away, quiet us before you, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to this church through this passage. Help us this morning, I pray. Will you build your people and will you honor the Son Make this passage clear. Help me to say what what you once said and help us to hear what you once heard. We pray as a thankful people because you are our Savior. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 11 where we find more of Jesus' teaching about appropriate response to him. As we've already seen, Luke has followed this important call to communion with him, calling people into communion with him by listening to his word and in prayer. That's the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11. He's he's followed that important call with some explanation of why one would want to commune with Jesus. He's the one who, by the power of God, has brought in the kingdom of God, a, a powerful work overthrowing the kingdom of darkness, of Satan. We saw that as, as we saw this 
brief account of how Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was mute, couldn't speak, brief account of the miracle, and then a, a discussion of what that miracle means, what we're supposed to draw from that as Jesus walks through the logic of how we should interpret that sign, and then warns us always about our response to that and any other evidences of the gracious kingdom power of God. We should respond always to the power of God as it comes to us. This was the point made last week as Jesus told the parable about a demon-possessed man cleansed of the demon and then the demon returns with a vengeance. The point there being that we must always take care to fill the vacuum. To fill the vacuum with the Spirit of God and the Word of God or else we remain empty and vulnerable to being reoccupied and exploited. If we're not going to be filled by the Word and filled by the Spirit as directed and empowered move towards God, we always remain vulnerable to being hardened away from him. So, attend to, respond to what you see, what you experience from God by turning to him and to his word. That was last week. And so here we have more of Jesus exhorting his listeners to respond to him, to respond in faith. We're going to look at this passage, verses uh, 29 and following. And as we do, I'm going to draw two observations from it. It's, again, about Jesus calling us to respond to him and, and kind of reasoning with us a little bit, showing us from, from the past why we should respond to him in faith. So I'm going to read 29 to 32, and then draw two observations from the passage. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's the word of God. I'm going to draw two observations from it. Here's the first. God appeals to humankind ultimately through a message of his truth. God appeals to humankind, to, to us, to people. God appeals to people through a message of his truth. That's the ultimate, that's the, the, the final, the, the biggest way, the main way. So what that means is that we have to be a people who are listening people, who listen receptively to God's truth delivered by God's messenger. That's not the situation in the passage. It begins with Jesus speaking as the crowds were increasing. And the grammar paints a picture of us here, for us here of, of people coming in, a crowd assembling at the moment, kind of like if you can picture yourself in a lecture hall as people are coming in before the talk starts. And Jesus is standing there and, and he assesses the crowd to those who are around close enough to hear him. He assesses what's going on and says, this isn't what it seems. Seems good, doesn't it? 
There's people flocking in, people coming to hear you teach. But he calls it an evil generation. And what's evil about it? It seeks for a sign. It's, it's actively pursuing and constantly wanting a sign, some sort of miraculous work, something to see and latch hold of as evidence. The crowd has heard him say that he claims to be the Messiah, and they are holding off on entirely open listening to him until he proves it. Okay, we've heard that. Now, we're holding you at arm's length. Show us some evidence. Give us a sign. Which may to us at first seem somewhat prudent. They're, you know, aren't, aren't they examining? Aren't they kind of weighing things out here? It, it may seem prudent until we remember that already in this chapter, up in verse 16, we've seen something similar. If you glance up above, you see others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And that's right after he just cast the demon out. He cast out a demon from a man who is now speaking. Everybody saw that. That's interesting. Wow, now show us a sign. Like what? Like what else? Sign after sign after sign after sign. Miraculous power, miraculous power, miraculous power. Demon cast out, nature commanded, sickness healed, dead people raised back to life. Like, like, what? like what else? What else? What else? It seems prudent on the front end until you actually recall everything that's happened and everything that these people actually saw, and you realize this is actually just one massive deception. It appears to be open-minded and appears to be investigative, but it's actually cloaked rejection, a hardening, a resistance, which Jesus understands and calls them out on. So before we get into this, we have to pause right there and, and kind of check ourselves. Because that kind of posture is not the way to listen. So in some way, does this resemble where you are right now? Maybe even very similarly to them, resisting Jesus entirely while looking like you're considering him sitting in church. I come and listen to what's said. I, I mean, I, I, I'm checking it out like this and like this. So not really. Jesus wants to, here at the beginning, kind of call that. To bring that up in front of you and say, are you in fact looking? Are you in fact seeking? Or are you using seeking as a way to resist and to hold off? Check yourself on that. But for most of us, for, for the large majority of us, even as Christians here now, perhaps this has something that, that kind of grabs you in a less confrontational, a less, a less hard way. Have you ever, even as a Christian, have you ever found yourself kind of holding back from God? reluctant to follow him, reluctant to say, here's, here's all of me, or here's this piece of me. Here's, here's this part of my life, or here's this part of my heart. Here's, here's this, this thing I'm holding back, reluctant to surrender and follow you, reluctant to lay down at your feet. Because as I look at what you're calling, I'm just not quite sure that pays off. 
are you really there? Are you really right? Are you really profitable? Are you really good? Will you, will you kind of like show me something? A sign maybe? Give me some evidence that it's worth it. And until I can see it with my eyes, I'm holding back. Maybe that's the Christian version of, of what Jesus' audience is looking like. Jesus' audience is not a believing audience, but as believers, we can resemble it in some ways by holding him off until actually I, I am demanding that you prove yourself to me. And until that happens, I will not live by faith. I'm committed to living by sight. Show me. Is that you? In some way here at the beginning, Jesus has to, has to call that because we won't hear him unless we are kind of alerted to our defenses and are willing to let them down to listen. They want a sign. Maybe we do too. They want a sign, but no sign will be given, meaning, of course, no further sign. He's given a bunch of signs. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So we have to slow down here and try to understand this because this is the, this is the heart of the first point here. And it, if you follow what he says, it is the sign that he will be showing us, and it is the sign that we are to be seeking, the sign of Jonah. So what is that? Well, if you remember the story of Jonah, and if you've read Matthew's parallel account to our passage, then one possible understanding of the sign immediately comes to mind. Basic story of Jonah. Jonah is called to go preach to Nineveh, a wicked Gentile city. He doesn't want to, so he flees the opposite way, and God chases him down with the storm. Jonah ends up thrown into the sea, ends up in the belly of a fish. That's in the story. And that's also mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew clearly mentions that because he wants us also to, to realize that Jonah, of course, came out of the fish and then went and preached, and the people heard and responded. So that, that's all recounted in Matthew. That's in Jonah. And it is important to listen to that and to see that. It's an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus, obviously coming out of the belly of the fish, coming out of the grave. We must consider that. We must think about that while we are reading Matthew. But that's not here. I think we're okay over here. It's not here in Luke. So being that it's not written here in Luke... I think that Luke wants us to be thinking about something else, to be considering some other aspect of the story of Jonah. There's another sign, if you will, something else we're supposed to see in Jonah that Luke records for us. So follow what I'm saying there. Let me kind of back up and run through that again. Yes, clearly the resurrection is implied in Matthew's account of the story. But Luke knew of Jonah. Luke knew of the resurrection Luke knew of what Matthew, said, Matthew wrote down because Jesus, Jesus actually said that, and Luke doesn't say it. So he's got something else for us to be thinking about. What is it? What's, what's here? Well, what's the context here in Luke? Verse 28, right before this ends, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Can you think of anybody who experienced blessed life when they heard the word of God and kept it? Well, Jesus, looking at his audience, says, not these people. I speak the word of God, and, and they just put, set it aside and want a sign. But I can think of somebody else who did. That's the context. That's what should bring us into our passage here. We're thinking about the word of God proclaimed, heard, and embraced. That's what's being commended to us in the verse right before, and that, in fact, is what happened at Nineveh, verse 30. As Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, as Jonah became a sign to them, how did Jonah become a sign to the people of Nineveh? Not by coming out of the fish. They didn't see that. There's no record in the Bible that he even mentioned it. Why would he have? But they didn't see that sign. So what did they see? How was Jonah a sign to them? What they saw was a Jewish prophet declaring the truth of God. That's all. No accompanying miracles. No healings. No gradual judgments to alert them. Just a defenseless, vulnerable man standing in this hostile city. Understand Nineveh is a great enemy of Israel at the time. Standing in this hostile city, taking his life into his own hands, as he says openly, 40 days from now, my God is going to destroy this whole place. That's it. That's the sign shown to them. What well, Shown to them where? How? It's a sign openly right there on the public street declared to them. It's a sign actually shown to them in their hearts as they heard, internally heard, not just with their, with their ears, not audio, but they heard inside, heard God preach by this otherwise unremarkable messenger. They had eyes to see the truth of God here. What happened? Skip to verse 32. They heard it and they repented. They heard the preaching of Jonah and they repented. The truth of God came to them. They heard it and they kept it. And in fact, that's also what's going on with the Queen of the South. Her story is mentioned in the Old Testament as well. In verse 31, she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Way off in her own country, what's emphasized there is the distance. She, she made some effort to come because she heard, way off over there, she heard of the Hebrew king who spoke the truth of God and she came this great distance to check it out and she heard it and she embraced it happily in amazement. So what's the common point between the two of them? People who heard the truth, not marvel at a miracle. They heard the message and they came to it and embraced it, believingly embraced it. The Queen of the South and the Ninevites. And likewise, that's the way that the Son of Man is assigned to the people standing in front of him. That's all he's going to show them. Ultimately, a preacher with a message. This is what I'm laying in front of you, truth from God. That's what you have in front of you to consider to deal with and that's where I leave it you know take that or don't 
God appeals to humankind ultimately through a message of his truth. And I say ultimately to try to capture the the, the definitive nature of this point, the, the final nature of it. It is not that there are no signs shown. Jesus obviously performed many miraculous things, including the resurrection. God is not in principle opposed to miraculous signs. They're there for a reason. But the point is, his ultimate, his definitive, his, his final, his foundational, his conclusive appeal to humankind comes in this way by a message of his truth. His word delivered to us. Signs can be missed. Signs can be misinterpreted. Signs can be mimicked. You recall even the first two of Moses' miracles? The powerful men of Egypt copied them. Satan has power. Signs can be mimicked or missed or misinterpreted. I one time was, years back, I was having a, an evangelistic relationship with a guy on a college campus, and he said, essentially not with these words, but I need to see like some evidence that this is true. I'm sharing the gospel with him repeatedly. I need to see some evidence this is true. I was at one campus. He was at another. I came back next week. Couldn't find him. He's gone. Came back next week. Found him. Where have you been for two weeks? No, no contact from you? You weren't here? Where were you? I was in the hospital. You were in the hospital? What happened? We got in a car wreck. Like the day after you were here last two weeks ago, I was with so-and-so and so-and-so. We got in a car wreck. The car went off the road and rolled twice, and we all walked away. It was amazing. I said, wow, God showed up in your life. Oh, no, that wasn't God. That, that was, I mean, that car is specially designed to be able to withstand rolls. It wasn't God at all. Was that a sign from God or not? I don't know. It wasn't to him. Signs are fickle. God's not opposed to signs. Miracles certainly happen and clearly happened most out of the mouth of and off the hands of Jesus. But signs are, are not God's ultimate definitive way. His word proclaimed is. Do you have eyes to see it, ears to hear it? A message delivered, truth set in front of you. This is his sign to you today. This is what we should be seeking after. That's why he tells us this, that we would seek after the right thing that we would not spend our time looking at the world, looking at circumstances, and trying to see if it, if it appears worth it before we listen, but instead to listen and then view our circumstances through what we have stood, what we have taken our stand upon. To seek after his word and to seek after eyes to see it, to seek after and to ask for this in prayer, Lord, would you open my eyes? Would you give to me? Because ultimately that's what it comes down to. Would you give to me? I don't see because I'm smarter. The Ninevites didn't see because they were, they were nicer and kinder and more loving and more God-oriented. They were wicked. God gives the grace of open eyes 
That's what we have to ask for as we pick up the word. God, would you give to me eyes to see this word and to see your truth come to me in this world, in this word. We are by nature blind, even as Christians, no no longer blinded in in the the absolute way, but we are prone to wander and we are prone to blurred vision and prone, prone to nearsightedness and prone to just frankly stop looking. So he tells us to orient us as to what to look at and what to seek after. Eyes to see his appeal to us in the word. Preached or or read now. We should take note. I'm tempted, as I thought about this, I'm tempted to say particularly young people, but I don't know if that's actually true. It might not be particularly young people. It might be all of us the same. We live in a a society that is dramatically, I'll say dramatically committed to entertainment and fun. That appeals to me through, through the channels of pleasure first. And it is very common for us to, to approach Jesus, to approach Christian faith or to approach particular aspects or calls of Jesus' message. Is this attractive and entertaining and fun and appealing? First question. Can you express it to me in a way that is attractive and fun and entertaining and appealing? If not, I'm moving on. Watch that. Maybe that's particularly young people. Maybe it isn't, but it is young people. Watch that. On the front end, whether or not this is entertaining is not relevant. On the back end, he promises, he promises to walk with him in truth is our joy. It is, in fact, our life. But on the front end, it may sound a lot like take up your cross and die daily. That's not fun, entertaining. I'm moving on. Oh, no, 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 no. You miss it then. You miss life then. He appeals to you through the word. And if you hold it at distance to ask first, show me how this pays off first. Show me how this is fun first. Show me how how this is delightful first. Show me how this is powerful, how this changes my life for good first. If you, if you hold off looking for that kind of evidence in life, you may miss it entirely. The order has to be the other way around. We have to, Lord, give me eyes to see the truth of your word, to hear your appeal to me in the message. First, and as we listen to his appeal in the message, The one that we find is awesome. It's awesome. Which is what brings us to the second observation. Behold, something greater has come. Don't miss it. Behold, something greater has come. Don't miss it. Verses 31 and 32 are are very similar verses, as as we've seen, showing us some parallels between this queen and and people in Nineveh. 
about how they responded in the past. There's also a piece that's forward-looking that's parallel. The Queen of the South, it says, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Verse 32, same thing. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn them. Jesus is speaking about the people right around him, and he's making a point about what will happen in the future. These people all around him have, have heard and seen, and at the judgment in the future, the, this queen and these Ninevites, he says, will rise up called as witnesses by God, the prosecutor. And they will give testimony that will be damning evidence. He will condemn them. They're not the judge. They're, they're, their testimony condemns. The queen will say, I'm a Gentile. I live a long way off, and I heard word of a Hebrew king who spoke in great wisdom, and I came all this way to listen to his word. And I watched him speak, and I took it in, and I responded to it in faith. And yet you live right next door to him, and he's actually your king, and you heard him speak. What did you do? Why didn't you respond? And the Ninevites will say, we were a wicked Gentile city, and a prophet came to us and spoke of our condemnation. And we listened. And here's a prophet who walked in, in your midst. Why didn't you listen? What's the common element in both those things? Not, not just that they're going to be at the, at the judgment, not just that they're going to testify. The, the common element is where Jesus ends both of those, those verses. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Not just someone, something. So he's not just talking about people. He's talking about the people and the message kind of as a package deal. The message of Jonah, the message of Solomon, great. It drew people to them. It, it, it changed people's responses. It changed their, their existence. Repentance happened. It's certainly significant. But here now... Here is the message of Jesus that is greater than all of them. Greater than anything else that God has sent. Greater than any other channel through which God makes his appeal to humankind. What makes Jesus greater? What makes his message greater? He speaks the word of God like any famous prophet like Jonah, but with greater authority than any prophet ever. The prophet says, thus says the Lord. And on the lips of Jesus, what that becomes is, but I say to you. We've seen that a number of times where, where Jesus takes himself and puts himself here. But I say to you, I have the authority to declare directly to you what is and what should be. Not even what God said is, what I say. He's the one who's able to speak as God himself because he is God. He stands in divine authority backed up with divine power. 
He commands the demons and commands nature and commands sickness and disease. And to that generation then, as, as to all of us now, he commands, like Jonah to Nineveh, commands repentance. Commands that we turn from our sin or else face judgment. Jesus does say that. But amazingly, he says more than just that. He calls for repentance and he also pronounces forgiveness on the repentant. And that gets at the heart of what his authority, what his divine message, what his preaching is for. He is present in authority for forgiveness. Take this in. Jesus' message includes a warning about judgment, but it isn't about judgment. If you think, think about judgment is such, it's, it's a central element to Jesus' ministry, but it's not what it's about. Think of other things in life. Think of things like the game of football. The game of football is not about tackling. Though every moment, every play includes tackling. But it's not the point. Every, every sentence, every paragraph, every, every piece of Jesus' life and ministry includes in view down the road. There, there is a judgment that's coming, but that's not the point. He is present in authority for forgiveness. Like Jonah, he speaks to confront wickedness and sin. And, and like Jonah, he was said to turn people from it, not seal them in it. To turn people from sin, turn people from wickedness, not seal them in it. But more than Jonah, Jesus is himself the Savior that sinners need. This is sweet. This is sweet. God himself standing on the earth in authority. And this gets at the heart of what's going on. Jonah, you, you read Jonah. You know, Jonah so much wants the authority of God to arrive for condemnation. He's, he's angry that it doesn't. Here's the authority of God in the person of Jesus arrived not for condemnation, but arrived for forgiveness. He is filled with authority. He has rightful power to save sinners. That's why he's sent. So he is not only the messenger, then Jesus uniquely is the message itself of mercy. Jesus does not just teach about the need to live or teach about the need to turn to God, the need to offer atonement, to pay for one's sin, to satisfy the wrath of God, but he is himself the wrath satisfier. He is himself the blood sacrifice. He is himself the life and the hope and the peace that we need. His message is not just about destruction that is to come, but mercy in him that has come. It is not just an implied repent and turn to God, but an explicit turn to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jonah couldn't touch that. 
God's appeal to us in this message of Jesus. God makes his appeal to us through a message, and he makes his appeal to us through this message of Jesus. It is so much greater than what he ever spoke through Jonah or through any other prophet, through Isaiah or through Jeremiah, the big names of the Bible. Jesus' message is far greater in its powerful, passionate, and authoritatively direct offer of mercy and grace to sinners in need. This is awesome. You walk through life. You live day by day facing whatever it is that you're facing. And constantly, I think, constantly, at least frequently, tempted to look out here and decide, do I give my life to this God? Is, is it worth it? Will you show me something that says yes? And what he says is, will you listen to this message, this message from Jesus? about a Savior come, not just to call you away from sin, but actually to save you. Listen to that message. It is the kind of message that as we take it in, it has this kind of effect in your heart. As you take that in, you think, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I will yet again praise him, my God and my salvation, as we sang earlier. My heart rises up. Why so downcast? And your heart lifts up as you listen to this message. This is the one sent to effect salvation for me. Oh, soul, why so downcast? I don't need it proved to me in, in my circumstances. I don't, I don't need to first get a job and then believe you to be good. I so downcast, oh my soul, listen to this message of him, my salvation. It is far superior than any message spoken by any prophet, and it is far wiser than any message spoken by any king. Jesus and his message is greater in its wisdom and power to make this salvation real. Solomon was certainly clearly wise. In fact, inspired by God. So when we read of or hear the wisdom come from Solomon, it is wisdom come from God. He understood the world. He understood people. He understood how to live in light of God in the world, and he wrote much of it down for us to take in. It is the wisdom of God. It is unparalleled, but it is surpassed by the wisdom of God powerfully shown us through Jesus. In Jesus, the wisdom of God moves from, you think of it like this, somebody who is explaining to me how to wisely live in the world to somebody who is bringing to me the actual wise God and his workings. So there's a difference there. One gives me instruction about how to walk wisely, and one brings to me the actual wise God 
and what he has done. Particularly what he has done to make salvation real. The wisdom of the cross is, is the wisdom of God most elevated in the Bible in relation to Jesus. No man imagined this and no angel foresaw it, but God in his wisdom, genius, planned out and then executed and is now applying a wise, vastly wise plan to save people. God himself come in flesh. Who thought of that? God. God himself come in flesh to humble himself to death, even death on the cross. Who thought of that? God. For what end? To in this God-man uniquely join together perfect righteousness and perfect condemnation and then switch them to give to you his righteousness and take from you his condemnation. Who thought of that? God did. And didn't just tell us about it, but did it in sending Jesus who is then become our wisdom. As Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 1, he breaks out wisdom to show us the pieces of salvation, the pieces of wisdom that are pertinent to our salvation. He is our wisdom that is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is the wisdom of God for us in Jesus. That this Lamb of God has become our righteousness He's the keeper of the law and cursed under the law. He's kept the law and is cursed under the law. And so as he trades with us, what happens is that he becomes our righteousness. We sang earlier about how we are cloaked in him. We, we are covered in him. He doesn't just show us, wisely explain to us like Solomon might have, here's how you should walk. He clothes us and gives us a standing that is as if we walked. He has become our righteousness. So you, Christian, you wear Christ. You wear Christ. You stand righteous, as Nathan said earlier. You stand righteous all by the wisdom of God. God planned that out. We never could have come up with it. All we come up with, evidence, the, all of the human religions of the world, all we come up with is walk this way and try to be good and righteous. And God wisely said, I'm going to make it so that it is by switching places with you. It is amazing. It is amazing. He's our righteousness and our sanctification. He's not just standing at a lectern to explain to us what good, right living looks like, what, what sanctification, what a setting apart into a unique place, a separating from the fallenness of the world to sanctify. He doesn't just explain to us, here's how you should live so as to be set apart. He sets us apart. God wisely in Christ devised a way that he plants Christ in us. He plants God himself in you. Christ becomes your sanctification. That is, 
He doesn't just cloak you so that you stand righteous, but He so fills you with His Spirit that He opens your eyes to, He gives you eyes to see as you consider the message, eyes to see the glory of Christ, and you are changed bit by bit by bit by bit. That is, you are sanctified bit by bit by bit by bit. You are made different. How did that happen? Who thought that up? God did. I will not just pay their penalty. I will move in, take up residence, and from the inside out, change how they see things, change how they feel about things. That'll make them different. Christ is our righteousness, our sanctification, and so then he is our full redemption. He makes us new. He moves us from fallen, ultimately one day to glorified. That's the trajectory that he's carrying us on. He is fixing you. He is not just instructing wisely. He is making it happen by moving in and pouring out power on you. This is, the difference here is, does it come from the outside in or from the inside out? God wisely has worked it out, inside out. That's remarkable. If you're a Christian, you can stop and you can look at yourself and say, I'm a different person now. Do you ever notice that? I can remember very clearly the first, in the first year of my new Christian life, I can remember very clearly being surprised at several points. I had interactions with people that used to be and assumed they still were in the same place that I was on topic X, Y, and Z. And as I talked with them, I thought, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Wait a minute. Why do I think that? Oh, huh. And I discovered something. I wouldn't put the words on it, but I discovered something. Have you ever discovered this? The wisdom of God at work in you. I was still, even at that point as a Christian, still thinking, the way I separate from this person is I just decide that's true, and then I start acting that way, and then we're different. But what I discovered was somehow I was moved. I think about this. I see it differently. God had moved into me and not just become my righteousness, but had become my sanctification and so was redeeming me. That is the message of Christ, the, the full message, the, the salvation of Jesus that God has given to you. It is not outside in, it is inside out. That's what he speaks to us. That's what he tells you he's doing right now. And that's how he appeals to you. He lays in front of you a message and says, I am Savior. I am Redeemer. My salvation and my redemption looks like this. From the inside out, I make you new. Do you see it? 
Come and follow me. That's how he appeals to you. There's an apologetic angle in this. The apologetic angle is what then comes out the other side of that? Different people commends the gospel to the world. There's an apologetic angle there. But there's also an encouragement and and an upbuilding, edifying angle to that. As I, as you, as a Christian, sit before the message and with eyes opened by God see it, I am made new and I realize God is real. God is for me. God is at work here and here. That is encouraging. That is upbuilding to me, particularly when I look out there and wonder because I don't see any sign of it. So what I'm getting at, if I boil all this down, Christ calls us to walk with him not by sight but by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the message given to us. The message about what? A far greater salvation than anyone before ever heard of. A salvation that is in Jesus, who is himself the sacrifice that makes us clean, who is himself the power that makes us new, and therefore is our complete redemption, all wisely and powerfully planned by God. That message is how he appeals to you, how he wants to grab you and pull you after him. That message is what we have to seek after and sit before. If we want to ourselves grow and want to ourselves be a testimony to God outside. So Christian, when you find yourself in some way holding him off, expecting or looking for some sort of external confirmation, check yourself. That may very well be unbelief. Check yourself. And at least, unbelief or not, at least notice I've got this backwards. I've got this backwards. I'm holding off on on this until I see it out here. I got to switch it around. Lord, speak to me. Speak to me through this message. Give me eyes to see you and your salvation in it. And then draw me on to live in my life. Draw me on to live in these circumstances that are hard. It's got to be in that order. And the promise is, that he wants to meet with you too. So he will draw near when you come to him, seeking him in his word. Let me pray. Father, would you settle on us 
you settle on us a, a hopeful determination to seek you in your word, to expect you to appeal to us through your word. Settle on us a determination and then meet us, please. As we come to you in, in word, in faith, op open-hearted and open-handed open before you, will you meet us? Will you show us this Christ? Show us this Christ in his, in his wisdom and in his mercy. Win our hearts to you, please. Settle our hearts if they're restless. Confirm our hearts if we're uncertain. Unite, draw our hearts to, to a oneness of focus if we're divided. Do you open the eyes of our hearts to enable us to behold you, the wonderful thing, in this, your word. And in so doing, Lord, would you build your church? There are a hundred different problems and a hundred different challenges that we face, but would you build this people as a whole, but each of us individually, will you build this people with your word In, in a delightful, a delightful, contented understanding of the great love you have shown us by saving us with Jesus. Along with him, you have caused us to stand in glory. Will you press that into us? Will you meet us in your word with that truth and open our eyes? Give us life, the blessed life that comes from hearing and keeping the word. We look to you for this. We need this from you. We can't make it happen, so please, we ask you to do it. And we say thank you. You are our good God, our Father. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. 
Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.